our loving Lord Jesus, you are the king of our hearts. Even when you don't act like it, you're the king of our hearts. Even when we have a hard time believing it and we come in here with burdens and heaviness, you're still the king of our hearts. And you're good. You're good all the time. And you won't let us down. You won't let us down in the hardness and the difficulties. You want us, won't let us down when our heart breaks because your heart is broken too. You are, will be near to us in that way. And Lord, I pray that as we talk today about what the gospel is, what this good news is that you came to announce, that it would go so deep into every single one of our hearts that we would start to feel your presence, that we'd start to sense that things are different now, that we are living by a different voice, by a different culture, by a different world because you're in it. Take it deep and teach us what you want us to know today, not what anybody else, including the one who teaches, wants us to think today, but what you want us to know. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for being here. Amen. You may be seated, please. Imagine that you're that guy. You're in your little cubicle of a room that's got a window on the other side. Just a little tiny space. And some people might say, well, that's not much, but you're so thankful for it. Because most Christians throughout the city don't have this. They're hiding behind walls in communities and families of believers because the persecution has gotten insane. And somebody had to pull some strings to get you this place that you call home so that you could write it down. Because somebody has got to write it down and everybody's looking to you. So as you take your quill and you dip it in the ink uh, bowl, all of the memories start to flood back and you pause for a moment because you start to think about what's happened in the last few weeks and the last few years and <clears throat> then you start to think about the reasons why nobody's gonna wanna read what you write. Why would they wanna listen to you? I mean, you think about just the other day you were at the market and there was this guy who walked right by you and then he walked by again and then he kind of looked over at you and walked by again and then he went behind you and bumped into you and finally he stops behind you and says, are you the one they call John Mark? And you're not sure what to say, so you say, uh, who's asking? Well, it's from a family of believers on the other side of the city that are led by Aquila and Priscilla. They're wondering if you started to write yet. Well, not yet, but I'm getting there. I'm just about there. I will. Okay, I'll take it back. So he takes it back. Or just a few weeks ago, you're walking down, minding your own business through the narrow streets of Rome, and some arm reaches out, reaches out from an alley and pulls you in and puts you up against the wall. Have you started yet? Well, not yet, but I'm going to. you got to write. Only you can do this. Have you walked by Nero's circus lately and seen those smoldering crosses and what he's doing to our brothers and sisters? you got to write it down, or this is going to be lost. We need it for our kids and for posterity and to be encouraged ourselves and to lift up the plea. you got to write down what you know. And as, as a wind comes through the window and kind of makes the lamp flicker on your desk, you think about the wind of the Holy Spirit who has trotted you before and, and, and reminded you that you're the one who has spent years following Peter across the empire as he's moved closer and closer to the heart of darkness in Rome. 
and you're the one that's heard the stories, and you're the one that has heard it from the apostles' lips to your ears, so everybody's dependent on you to write it down because nobody's written this down before. It's untold. But as you have that thought, you think, why should anybody listen to me? I mean, there are so many embarrassing moments in my life. And in this culture, in Roman culture, once your reputation is out of the bottle and it's not good, it's almost impossible to stick it back in. You think of the first time you encountered Jesus, and you think about being in your parents' home and Jesus bringing his 12 disciples to this upper room where your parents lived, and he has dinner with them, and it turns out it's his last dinner before he dies on the cross with his disciples. And you're listening to this. You've heard about this guy. You've heard about that he's the God-man, and you're starting to believe it because it's just amazing. You're kind of standing off in the corner. You're standing in an archway of a door, and you've been in bed as a young person. It was about time to go to sleep, so you just pulled your sheet around you, and you're standing in the doorway. Well, they get serious, and they pull up, and they take off and, and, and go across the city down through the Kidron Valley to the foot of the Mount of Olives. And as they go, you follow them as a young man. And you, you thought it was a good idea at the time to just go out in that bedsheet until Jesus gets arrested. And everybody takes off and scatters in all directions. So you scatter. I mean, you don't know what to do. You're just a young person. And you start to scatter, but somebody grabs that linen, that bedsheet and pulls on it as you run away, and you remember this almost slow motion feeling of that sheet slipping off your shoulders and getting terribly cold because you're naked as a sheared sheep. And all you know, remember, is you, you, don't, you don't remember anybody running after you, any footsteps, any breathing, because you know they're not coming after you. You just hear this cackling laughter that gets stronger and stronger, but farther and farther away. And then there was a trip with Barnabas and Paul, the mission trip, Barnabas, your cousin, and it was so hard, and you were so young, and their persecutions were rising up everywhere that you went, and so you left the team in Perga, and you said, Barnabas, I just got to go home, and he was encouraging, because he's always encouraging, but you knew Paul wasn't happy. He didn't say much of anything. He said, okay, well, if that's what you need to do, you go do it. You knew that he was incredibly disappointed. The great Paul, you had disappointed him. Barnabas took you on another trip, but Paul didn't. But over the years, you began to hear that Paul really wanted to see you again. And now that you're in Rome, you realize that he wanted you there with him because it was the end for him. And just a little while ago, before, uh, just before he was executed himself, you got to go see him, and Paul grabbed you, and he pulled you tight, so tightly that you thought you were going to break, and he pulled his mouth up to the ear, and he says, I need you, Mark. I need you. We need you. The church needs you to tell what you've got. We need you to write down the story. You're the last one who has the direct information of what happened to those people and what happened in those days that Jesus taught and led those 12 apostles around the Judean and Galilee area. You got to tell a story. And at that point, you look down, you realize there's a big blotch of ink on your sleeve that you've been dripping all this time. And so you take a rag and you wipe off the quill, the crusty ink that's on there, and you dip it one more time. And as you do, you get that feeling again. 
You get that, you start to hear that inner voice in the back of your head that says, right, Mark, right. And so you put it down on the page and the ink just seems to spill out and it's coming out faster than you think your fingers can move. And it starts with the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, and you're off to the races. We don't know for sure exactly what all those details, but the early church fathers in the first and second century tell us that most of those details, with the exception of the personal interactions, of course, Paul tells us that he, had, he wanted to have that interaction with Paul at the end of, or Mark at the end of his life. All of that's really in tradition, that something like that happened for Mark. Because here's the thing, Mark's the first guy to write a gospel in the New Testament. And... Um, we know that it, it reflects Peter's stories. It reflects what you'd think of Peter. You know, Peter was one of those guys, man, he's my patron saint. If it's up here, it's coming out here. Just bam, 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 bam. But not telling stories, not exaggerating, not getting phoniness, but saying exactly what Jesus had taught him to say. And that's the way Mark is written. It's written with power words, with hot words. It's concise. It's happening so fast. It's boom, boom, boom. It's moving fast and quick, but with a very careful uh, detail to be accurate and be, con- be concise, yes, but to be accurate and thorough enough to tell the real story. It's not in chronological order at all, but that, you could kind of see Peter in that, can't you? Just say, oh, yeah, yeah, and this happened, and oh, yeah, yeah, and this happened. And, and, and we're told, that, that uh, Mark was, was sort of under a deadline on this thing. It's like a journalistic deadline. Why? Because the thing hadn't been written down, and Peter's life was at risk. He, he was either about to be uh, killed, just like Paul, by Nero, Caesar, or he was already dead when Mark starts to put pen to paper. And so Mark has this kind of deadline, this, this kind of sense that this has got to go, this, is, this has got to be news that gets out because it's way more powerful news and way more important news than the drivel that comes out of the empire. I, I've uh, met a man who uh, had dinner with him and heard some of his teaching who's a professor down at a seminary, Bethel Seminary in San Diego. His name's Mark Strauss. He wrote a commentary and has dedicated much of his adult life to studying the book of Mark. And here's how, what he says, a one line about this gospel that says it all. The gospel, this is a gospel narrative on steroids. It's kind of like an ancient thriller, really. It's like pow, bam, pop, that kind of thing. That's what Mark is like. It's going to move fast. And, and so what we're going to try to do today and what we're going to try to do for the next months that we go through Mark, is try to unpack what was it like, what was really said, what, what did Jesus really want us to get, what is this gospel anyway? And to get to, at that, I want to just tell you a couple of facts that we know about uh, first to kind of help us understand the power and the impact of this story. First thing I need to tell you is there's this thing called Mark and Priority. Mark and Priority. That's just a fancy way of saying Mark wrote first. Why didn't you say that, Dwayne? Yeah, well, you know, prior, priority, kind of fancy. That's the, that, it, most scholars believe today that Mark was the first of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John to write down the gospel in the New Testament. And, and Mark, Mark wrote this um, in, 
in probably the time around where Peter and, and Paul were executed in Rome, he probably wrote it from Rome. Uh, there, there's this interesting little bit of information from a guy named Papias. Papias wrote uh, during 95, not 1995, 95 to 110, you know, like 65, 70 years after Jesus was crucified. And, and uh, the report is that he rose from the dead. All those, not that far away, there was a guy named Papias who was the bishop of Herapolis, and he wrote down some information about what he had seen and who he'd seen it from and what he'd heard. When he was a kid, apparently his parents and the, the adults around him had um, these, these elders and these teachers and these Christian leaders and these famous people coming through their house. And one of them was a guy by the name of John the Elder. John? Could it be like the Apostle John? We're not thoroughly sure, but that seems to be the implication. He calls him not just the elder, but the presbyter. Presbyter is another word for elder. And here's what he says about what he saw and what John the elder said about Mark. Presbyter used to say this also. Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote down accurately, but not in order, all that he remembered of the things that were said and done by the Lord. That almost sounds like Peter, right? Boom, 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 whatever comes to his mind. For he had not heard the Lord or been one of his followers, that is, Mark had not. But later, as I said, he was a follower of Peter. Peter used to teach as the occasion demanded without giving systematic arrangement to the Lord's saying. So this isn't meant to be chronological order. So that Mark did not err in writing down some of the things that he recalled them. He, he wrote them down just as he had recalled them from what Peter said. For he had one overriding purpose, to omit nothing that he had heard and to make no false statements in his account. Isn't that interesting? That means when, Paul, when Mark sat down to write this, he took care to get it all in there of what he had heard and to not leave anything out. So you can kind of feel like, uh, sense why, why he's so quick and why he's so fast and why he's going to, let's just go through some of the facts of, of uh, when this was written and why it was written and how it was written. Let's do it quickly in, in Mark fashion, fast, boom, 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 boom. And, and, and why uh, would we, we, we do this? Because it really brings some strength to our faith, Okay. I'm going to go through a little history here and dates and times and stuff like that. And if you don't like that stuff, just hang on because there's a payoff at the end. But here's the, here's the uh, fact that you need to understand. Most people date Mark in terms of where he wrote it around 60 to 64 A.D. In the early to mid um, 60s A.D. And the reason for that is in Mark 13, 14, Jesus predicts that there will be the abomination of the desolation. In other words, the, the, the pagans are going to come in, destroy the temple, and he's saying to those who are God followers, you need to run to the hills at that point, okay? And, and at the very least, a lot of people interpret that as when Rome, or when, uh, sorry, when Jerusalem fell and the Romans came in and, you know, not one stone was left on another as Jesus had portrayed and predicted and prophesied. And that happened in 66 AD. So people think that this was right around that time. But let's just say, put it anywhere in that time frame in the 60s. That's only 30 years or so after the crucifixion, which happened in 30 or 33 AD. Only 30 years. That's not that long that he's writing this. So you can kind of see why, you know, there's sort of an anxiousness to get this down because all the apostles are being killed off and dying off and they're not around anymore and so forth and so on. But here's another interesting fact that, that Papias calls out, and that is that Peter was, uh, that, that Mark was Peter's interpreter, that he followed him across the empire all the way to Rome. 
That's why they, they said tradi- church tradition strongly says that he was in Rome when he wrote this. So Peter had the ear of Mark, and that's what Mark is writing out of. And, and so it's this Peter. You're going to think about who Peter was here for a second. Most of the book of, or first half of the book of Acts is about Peter. Second half is about Paul. Uh, Peter shows up all over the New Testament in other places, doesn't he? Like, for example, he shows up in one of Paul's writings, Paul's earliest writing, called the book of Galatians. And he mentions this gospel that both he and Peter believe, Paul does. And he says, this is, this is the same gospel that Peter preached and so forth, and this is, this is the gospel that I've preached from the beginning and so forth and so on, okay? But, but he also has a sort of confrontation with Peter about how to live out that gospel. He doesn't doubt Peter's, that Peter believes this gospel. He's just doubting how he's acting. Watch this. In chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Galatians, he says in verse 11, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation uh, from Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ. So he wants us to know that just like Peter, just like James, just like John, I received it from Jesus directly from him. Verse 11 of chapter 2, when Cephas, that is Peter, I put the brackets in there, by the way. I don't want you to think I'm adding the scripture, but that's, that's actually Peter. Just his other name, Jesus gave him the name Peter. Peter came to Antioch. I opposed him to his face because he stood uh, accused. Uh, what was the last word there? Yeah, anyway, you got it. For, uh, thank you, condemned, thank you. For before, <laughs> I've memorized the entire New Testament, but not that word. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they were arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Now watch this. He's going to bring up the gospel again. When I saw that, they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, the truth being that Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament law. I said to Cephas, or Peter, in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you ask the Gent- force the Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? So the point of this is not the controversy and not the challenge. I mean, Paul was confronting people left and right. Apparently, he was that kind of guy. But that's not the issue. The issue is it's the same gospel. And the issue is, is that when Paul wrote Galatians, most people believe it was the earliest letter that was ever written that winds up in our New Testament. It's the earliest book, around 48 or 49 A.D., So it's way back there. This story of confronting Paul over that same gospel that they both believed happened at least in the early 40s AD. Probably sooner than that because Paul went to the Jerusalem council in Acts 15 after Peter had kind of changed his tune on some of these things very early. But let's just say that it's in the early 40s. Let's just say that it's that. That's only 10 to 15 years after Jesus went to the cross. It's pretty easy to remember things that happened 10 or 15 years ago, isn't it? I mean, the older I get, the less it is. But I mean, you know, it is. But that's not all. What about this Peter? This Peter who was, you know, the guy who denied Jesus three times, but then all of a sudden he's brave and he stands up. And he preaches the first sermon of the church, the first apologetic sermon. Look at this in in Acts chapter 2. Here's what he says, and this is the nugget of the gospel right here. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to, to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him. 
As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the deep or with, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead. God has raised Jesus to life, and we're all witnesses. All of us standing up here, plus any of you, can go over there and look for the empty tomb. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. That's the gospel. And he was preaching it way, way back there. You see, this is Peter. This is the Peter who was right there at the beginning one of Jesus' first fishers of men. Remember that? This is Peter who, who may have denied Jesus three times. But before that, he was the first man, the first male, to enter the empty tomb. I mean, justice where justice is due, ladies. It's clear that the ladies discovered the empty tomb. But Peter and John go running. John, for whatever reason, stops outside, pulling the china closet. Peter goes running right in the tomb. He was the first one in there. This is the Peter who, after denying Jesus, was, you know, terrified one moment and just a few days later was so courageous that he stood up in front of the whole of Jerusalem, in front of the authorities that were threatening to put people to death, that they talked about Jesus, like they put him to death, and preaches these words about what the gospel really is. Now, here's the thing. Don't let any of your professors or some journalist or some friend or somebody tell you the hocus pocus, that somebody wrote this thing called Mark, wrote the gospels hundreds of years after it happened, with no real idea of what really happened. Because this wasn't 30 years after. This wasn't 20 years after. This wasn't 15 years after. This wasn't even two years after when Peter preached this same gospel that Paul taught, that Mark puts down in his book. It was a couple of months after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. That's the kind of certainty that we have. Now, understand this, understand that. If you're in your 20s, I understand that 30 years seems like the days of Charlemagne. But for some of us, 1989, that's when our youngest child was born. For some of us, we can remember that in 1989, the rock group YouTube, the media was saying they're all washed up, they'll never have a hit again. Oh boy, were they wrong. But 20 years, most of us can remember stuff from 20 years ago that were impactful to our life. But a couple of months, we absolutely can remember some things that were impactful to our life. So as Mark's writing this down, and he's one, the first one to write it down, and John writes later, and he's, he's writing some extra stuff that he had seen from Jesus. So he's a little different than the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke and Matthew use his stuff because they, they have confirmed it. Matthew saw it because he was with Jesus. Luke confirms it because he's interviewed in hundreds of people across the empire and, and in Jerusalem and in Judea and Galilee that have seen this stuff, including, including Jesus' family and people close to him. And they're all right, and that's the kind of certainty that they have. So there's a couple of big, hairy, practical questions that come out of this, and the first one is this. If that's the kind of impact that this newsflash had, if that's the kind of, of, of news that Mark was trying to be told, we ought not let it go untold for us. We ought not let it be, and that's why we're doing this series and why we're doing this message. I, I um, 
I thought about this and I thought, you know, it was untold in terms of being put on paper in Mark's day, but you know what? I think it's just as untold today. Uh, more and more in the last five to 10 years, I've heard more and more people do something like this. A, a journalist uh, in, a, in a news article or a, a celebrity uh, that I'll read something they said or, or an interview on the news that I'll see or even people that I come in contact with, they'll say, well, you know, it's like Jesus said, and I'm thinking, uh, Jesus didn't say that. People don't really know what this story is. Of all people, Christians, we, we ought to know what this story is. But I mean, it's sort of like, you know, well, like Jesus said, God helps those who help themselves. Uh, that's not what Jesus said. That's not in there. I mean, as cool as the sayings of Abraham Lincoln are, and as a great a man as he was, he wasn't Jesus, right? That's... That, the question is this, if it's that big of an impact, don't you think we owe it to ourselves to dig in enough to find out, does this have that same kind of life-changing impact today? Does this shift me from that culture, whatever culture I'm living in, to the, his culture? We've got to ask that and seriously spend that, because here's, here's the true proof. This doesn't prove that Jesus rose from the dead, all, all this dating and all this time and how close the same gospel and it never changed. That doesn't prove anything, but what it does prove is this. It proves that this is the gospel that people believed about Jesus from the very beginning. We're seeing what happened within a month or two of Jesus ascending into heaven. This is it. And Mark is making sure that we would have it. Well, what is this gospel? What is this news that he's trying to write down? Because he said right in his banner headline that I just read you earlier, it's like there's four things that I'm trying to tell you. There's four things I'm trying to say. And let me just, again, in rapid fire succession like Mark would do, like Peter might do, because you know how excited Peter could get. He, he, four things that he, he needs to tell you that this is what it's going to be about. The first one is, he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What beginning? What, what, what is that? What does that mean? Well, it means that there's a link to the prophets. There's a prophetic link. It means what, what, Lucas, or sorry, what Mark is saying is he's saying, hey, this is what we've been waiting for. We've been waiting for this for 700 and some years since Isaiah said that there would be this person coming. This is the beginning. This is the start of the movie that's more than a movie. This is the start of the story that changes everything. This is the start of a story that will change culture after culture after culture and life after life after life and challenge government after government after government. This is it. It's a prophetic link to that. And secondly, he says, it's good news. You know what good news means? It's the word gospel. Some translations just translate it that way, gospel. But most people nowadays get a little fancier and they say good news because that's what it means. It's the Greek word euangelion, which is the word uh, that we get evangel from or evangelism from or evangelical from. Apparently, we're supposed to live this gospel, so I think it'd be good if we knew what it was. You see, in the, in the, in the Roman Empire, they used this word for all kinds of announcements of big things, the birth of Caesar, Caesar's throwing a party, uh, military victories, you know, there's a wedding. Hey, got gospel, we got good news, there's a wedding. They'd even use it for funerals. Ah, oh, we got big news, good news, there's a funeral. Roman Empire, I guess that was good news. I mean, so you got all this kind of good news. But when the gospel writers took this over, they weren't saying that this is good news alongside other good news. You see, this is why the Romans got so ticked. And why the legalists of the Pharisees got so ticked. Because they were saying, this isn't 
a good news. As Mark writes, this is the good news that overwhelms all the rest. And that's what fried their gourd so much. And what Mark is trying to do is he's trying to go line by line by line by line and show this is what happened, this is what happened. It, it, it's exactly what the prophet said hundreds of years ago would happen. This is the big show. It's, it started out. For example, like Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 52, the word gospel actually shows up. Watch this. How beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news. That's the word gospel. Euangelion in the Greek translation of the Old Testament who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings. It's like those angels that talk to the shepherds when Jesus is born, remember? I bring you great tidings of, a good tiding of great joy. Who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. God's starting a new reign here. Listen to your watchmen. Your, uh, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, when he puts his foot <clears throat> on the earth again, they will see it with their own eyes. What Mark's saying is that we've seen it with our own eyes. And he's trying to write it in such detail and accuracy, but with enough punch that people would see it with their eyes 2,000 years later, sitting in Eastridge Church in Happy Valley, Oregon, and hear it maybe for the first time. And so... Mark says, that's the gospel. And the gospel is this, that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, has come. What, what's that mean? That means promise made that the Messiah would come, promise kept. Promise made, promise kept. But, but here's the thing. Jesus, the Messiah, uh, is, is another way of saying Jesus the Christ. Because that's how it actually is in the Greek. It's, it's Jesus Christos in there. And, you know, Jesus being Jesus' name, like a lot of families in the ancient Near Eastern world, uh, Mary and Joseph named their baby Jesus because it had to do with his destiny and what he would, would be. And now we, of course, know they had a good reason to do that because Gabriel showed up with Joseph and said, hey, name him Jesus. Why? Well, because his name it should mean Yahweh saves because that's what he's going to do. He's going to save the world. He's going to save lives. He's going to save us from our sin. Yahweh, Yeshua, uh, I mean, uh, Yeshua, Jesus, uh, Joshua, all mean Yahweh saves. So they named him that, the destiny. But secondly, he also acquired the name of Jesus Christ. This is the only time Mark uses that phrase. He, he, he prefers to use just his earthly name, Jesus. But Christ is his title. That means Messiah. It means anointed one. One who has come to set up a kingdom. And it means, it's pointing to the direction that there's only one person in the universe that has the right to do that. And that is the fourth thing Mark wants us to know, that he's the son of God. He's the son of God, that the news that God has put his foot on terra firma. Now, this is really big. It leads to another one of those big, hairy, practical questions. But before we get there, I, I just want to tell you about, you know, what is the big news? This, this, this might sound kind of like a trick question or, a, a, you know, a Captain Obvious kind of thing that I'm being silly, but I'm not. You know, what is it that's so big about this news? What is it that's big that should still be big about this news. At this point, I love what a guy named John Dixon in his book called uh, The Best Kept Secret of Christian Mission uh, writes about this fact. And he's writing about Mark and Mark's announcement here of Jesus having come to earth. Look what he says. At the heart of the gospel message in the Old Testament and New Testaments is the idea of God's rule as king. In other words, his kingdom 
when the first Christians proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, they were not copying the gospel, quote-unquote, of the Roman kingdom, the imperial gospel of these announcements they would make. They were exposing it as a fraud. (laughs) No wonder they didn't like them. It was God, not any human king who ruled over it all. This is the central theme of the Christian gospel. We, this is how we interact with this. We are involved fundamentally in a reality mission. It's not some kingdom out there somewhere. It's right here in this reality mission calling men and women to return to the one to whom they belong. I, I underline that because I love that description. That's what we are. That's, that's a description of our life as Christians, a reality mission, to call people to reality. And here's the big, fat, hairy question. If this is a challenge to the fraud nature of the Roman Empire, what does it say about every other culture and every other empire that is opposed to this one? Let's follow it up and even make it more practical. If you've ever felt frenetic or freaked out or worried or confused or struggling with what comes out of the Washington, D.C. Empire or the Salem Empire, or any other empire on the earth, don't you think it'd be a good idea to find out what the gospel did to the Roman Empire? That changes the way I look at my life, doesn't it, for you? It ought to change the way we look at our culture and realize, you know, we don't have to get all up and bothered about it and get in people's faces and all that kind of stuff. We don't have to do that. Why? Because we know the reality of what's really going on and what's really happening around. In fact, that's exactly where Jesus was trying to go when he told us exactly what the gospel message was that he came to do. And guess who records it? He was first, and he puts it first in the first chapter of his, his, his book, his, his story of Jesus. It's Mark. And, and we're going to look at this again, but I just want you to see this. Because right up front, we don't have to wonder, well, I wonder what Jesus was trying to say. He tells us, look at this. Verse 14 of chapter 1. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's the response, the only natural response. But let's look at those first three phrases. What does that mean? Well, first of all, the time is fulfilled. What does that mean? Well, it means God's got a calendar. When Jesus would be born, on God's calendar. When Jesus is coming back, on God's calendar. When you were born, on God's calendar. When I was born, on God's calendar. When Eastridge Church would start, on God's calendar. What's going to happen and how it's going to happen and what God's going to do and amazing things in the next five years through his family called Eastridge Church, on his calendar. What he needs to do to pick us up and carry us through on the hard times and the difficult times or the challenges you face to show you that there are bigger things, that he's got bigger things, that he's got this, that he's got taken care of. All on God's calendar. He knows when it's coming and he's keeping it for himself. Doesn't need to, you don't need to worry about it because, you know, if he, scared, if he told you and I what was coming up, we'd be scared to death. But he's he not scared. He didn't need to be. He can overcome it all. All of that is on his calendar. It, it's something that Pastor Timothy and I talked about yesterday when we were talking about some real hard times in our ministries and the difficulties we've had and how many times we've gone in on Monday mornings and go, I want another job. This fact that he is in control and that his kingdom is here and that as we're going to see, it's closer than a brother is what keeps me going oftentimes. And it's what will keep you going. 
oftentimes. Here's the other thing he says. He says it's the kingdom of God. What does that mean? He's saying that this is just as real as in every other rulership, every other government in the world that will ever be and ever has been. There are a lot of has-been rulerships, a lot of has-been kingdoms and empires, but there's only one that's still in effect. And it's this one, the kingdom of God that Jesus came to announce. And this kingdom is now close at hand. This means like right next to you. And it's kind of a gross illustration, but the only illustration I could think of this week about how close and what this closeness word means. It means it's, it's right up next to you and under your shirt. <laughs> I mean, it's like what my basketball coach told me at Gresham High School, or not just me, but our whole team. I want you guys to play defense. I want you behind their numbers. What do you mean, coach? I want you to get up underneath their jerseys and be, get all sweaty. I don't care how close. But be on them. Well, that sounds gross, coach. Well, then you're not going to play. <laughs> that's not what Jesus is saying, that you're not going to play. But what he's saying is that's how close the kingdom is to you and me because it goes deeper than that. It goes right to the heart that he's king of all of this and king of all of this in here. That's how deep and how powerful. That's what Jesus is announcing. So, you know, repent is a word that means agree with God. Turn around, stop doing and thinking about and worrying about whatever else you are and just say, okay, you're right. I believe you. And let the Holy Spirit take it from there. That's what the gospel is. That's the power of it. You see, you, you, you kind of come down, if you haven't gotten the so what yet, let me try to land it this way. Last week, we finished up by talking about this kingdom business. We said that God has given us this kingdom, it says uh, in Hebrews chapter 12, that, uh, that will not be uh, shaken or destroyed or taken away. Look at this. I, wa- I want you to see one more thing of it. Uh, first of all, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. I can't believe you did this, God. This is amazing. For you are, a, you, our God is a consuming fire, which is a quote from the Old Testament. Now, I want you to notice that part about the shaken. It cannot be shaken. If you remember, the, we, we looked at this, the, the, the verses before talk about how when God spoke at uh, Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments, shaken. In Hebrew, or I mean, sorry, Haggai chapter 2 says God's coming back in the end, and then the world is going to be shaken. In Acts 4, when the disciples pray, they're under persecution. They say, God, please, give us boldness. We're not asking you to take us out. Just give us boldness because we want to share your message. Bam, as soon as they say amen, the whole place shaken. But he says this kingdom will never be shaken. It cannot be taken out. It cannot be stopped. You can believe this and you can follow this and you can give your life to this and you'll never be disappointed. The cultural moral revolution that we're seeing now, it's not sustainable. It's going to crash in on itself. But the kingdom of God will never crash in on itself. It hasn't all these years. It's still going. It still is. That's what Mark's trying to tell us. That's what Jesus is trying to tell us. And that's why Mark is trying to tell us. And I want you to take out this card that is in your bulletin today. You see this gray and brown card. I want you to see two th- a couple of things. One, I want you to see the method in my madness of having the devoted series and then going to, into months of studying Mark and learning about Mark and seeing this kingdom and the gospel firsthand up close and personal. The reason I want, want you to do that is I want you to see that there's a connection between how we live this gospel and what the early Christians did. 
In Acts 2.42, we talked about that. There are four things that they did. They listened, they gathered together like we're gathering now, listened to gospel teaching. They met in smaller groups and family groups. And it was called, really, they considered it Jesus' family. Even if they weren't natural families, they were together. And this is our group. This is our family. This is our unit. Uh, and, and then they, they served in the same direction. They ministered. They loved one another. They ate together sometimes and shared food with other people. And then they prayed for, over it all, all the time. And that's really what we're trying to say here is because we want to live the gospel as a church and as a people, we ask you to do four things every week. We ask you to gather for worship and hear the teaching. We ask you to be a part of some sort of small group that meets on a regular basis every week or every other week and to serve in some way, either here or in the ministry out there. So we're moving forward. And as you go about your business, as you go about your days or whenever you meet with your group or whenever you meet your family or whenever the Holy Spirit says, hey, pray for that person now, that you do it that you pray over it all. That's it. That's living the gospel. That's living the gospel because that's all they did. Wasn't programmed. Wasn't a big deal. It was just, okay, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in every day. And that's all I'm saying. You know, that's, that's what it means that God becomes a consuming fire. We said that last week that God is not a consuming fire to burn off all our needed life but to burn off the stuff we don't need, but to take us and to heal us and to love us, it's that kind of fire in the fire of his spirit. Now, I'm going to invite the band out here because along those lines, it has to do with this kingdom that does not, will not be shaken. It has to do with this consuming fire. It has to do with this gospel that we want to live, not just learn about in our heads, but live out in our lives, that we're living in a different culture. We're not living in all the cultures that say, hey, you got to live by us. No, we're not. We do not have to do that. We're not a part of that. <clears throat> but when I asked you to pray, one person wrote a card that I want to share with you. They wrote something on the back. Because this is powerful, and this kind of gives a really good illustration of how this kingdom will never be shaken and taken away. Um, one of the things that amazes me about this church is how many smart people we have and how many wise people we have. In fact, this person is so smart, I had to look up some of the words they wrote down. I'm, I'm not that smart. But uh, they, this person's a scientist. She's a biologist. I, I know her. I've talked to her about these things, but she made a note that says, I can, I can share this with Eastridge. Here it is. Fire, as in that consuming fire, brings new life in creation. Serotonous cones from conifer trees. Okay, what's that? I looked it up on the internet. So, uh, they're like pine cones, fir cones, Douglas firs. Those are conifer trees. The evergreen trees. Those cones, when they're in fire, here's what happens. Fire opens up the cones and scatters them on the ground and leads to germination and new life. That's how they reproduce. What if when we're under the fire, when we're under the pressure and Jesus is leading us through it and showing us, hey, this isn't going to you know, take you. This isn't gonna, I got you. I got you. We're together forever. So what about that? That that's when the life keeps going. You cannot put this gospel down. Ever. You cannot put this Jesus down. And because we're connected with him, he, he, we, we won't be put down either. That's the reality. That's the message. That's the vision of making resilient disciples who show gospel love with their daily lives to one another and other people. It won't be shaken. It'll never be taken away. Let me pray for us as you pray with me. Heavenly Father, Thank you for this gospel. Jesus, thank you for coming and reestablishing and showing to the enemy that you're the king.
and inviting us to let you be king of our hearts. You are anyway, but you invite us to acknowledge the reality of it and thereby live your gospel, be forgiven from our sins, to be able to have resilient resurrection power lives in this world, in this culture, or whatever culture we were living in. We thank you for what we've heard today about brothers and sisters in other parts of the world that are doing the same thing. Help us to do that and not get bogged down in the, the euangelions of this world and the culture that we just happen to live in. Give us your grace on this day. You always do, but help us to see it. Thank you for giving us your presence. May as we go from this place, I pray that every single person in the Eastridge Church family would see you alive and present in their lives, in their daily lives, in the moments of their lives, and we'd sense your spirit telling us what to pray for, when to pray, and giving us the urge to be together again. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for being here in a powerful way through your word today. It's in your name we pray, amen.